One of my favorite parts of every Sunday is this moment, the pastoral prayer. This has come to be one of the richest moments in our, our corporate gathering. The prayer before the preaching. The prayer before the meal. Let's make our prayer. Father, what a text before us. Would you please drill deep this day? I didn't come here to entertain these people sitting before me. I came to open your word, to expose them to your character. I came to awaken affections in them for you. Help me not to fail in that. You have given us through today's passage some hard truths, some scary truths. It could cause confusion and even despair unless your Holy Spirit comes alongside it and shows its beauty. Father, help us to leave today saying we walk through a beautiful text that revealed beautiful truth about your beautiful and glorious gospel. This is our corporate plea. Amen. Church, you are used to me easing you into the text, slowly walking you into the water. I don't have time for that. There's too much here. I need to get you in the text and get you meditating on the sweet but hard truths found in it. I usually walk out at the beginning why you need the text even before we get into the text. So let me do that. Why do you need the text? Because it's God's word. Now that that's over, let me give you the backstory. David is a defunct king. His son Absalom ran him from the palace, took his throne, took his crown, took his bed, took his slippers, took his lunch money. He took it all. Absalom even took his women which were also his stepmothers. There's some weird Eastern Kentucky, Lower Alabama stuff going on here. <laughs> Defunct King David is in the wilderness. We don't know how much time elapsed between the previous chapter and this one. It could have been a week, a month, six months, a year. We don't know. We do know this time has afforded David the opportunity to organize and recruit more mercenaries. His original 600 have now become thousands. Absalom is not content with David's slippers or his lunch money. He wants his life. He's coming for David in the wilderness. But David is ready. Verse 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to them, I myself will also go out with you. David musters the troops to deploy them to battle, and he divides his host into three parts. After marshalling the great host, David informs, I myself will also go out with you. It's an emphatic pronouncement in the Hebrew. He plans to be on the front lines himself. 
He, he's a king who goes out before his people. He doesn't just command men of war from a distance. He leads them in the flesh. The problem, he's 70. Over 70. He's not a warrior king anymore. This isn't young David. He says, I'm marching with you. They respond, no. You mustn't march with us. He's dissuaded on the grounds of importance. Look at verse 3. And the men said, you shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. There's an account in the Civil War, uh, the Battle of the Wilderness in 1864, where General Robert E. Lee noticed a breakthrough in his lines and organized a hasty defense. When the brigade of Texas troops arrived, General Lee urged his horse, Traveler, forward, intending to lead the charge. But the Texans wouldn't allow it, shouting, Lee to the rear, Lee to the rear. They refused to go forward until Lee went back to safety. You have a similar setting here. David to the rear, David to the rear. Maybe the underlying reason was his age. He could put the army at risk. David's all dressed up with nowhere to go. He was fully intending to march out with his troops. The narrator wants to give you reasons why this unusual scenario is taking place. A king staying home and not going to battle with his troops. And so this is why we have this comment. David stands beside the city gate and watches as the entire army marches past. Verse 5. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. King David is valuing Absalom above the army's safety. David is valuing his son above the kingdom. Maybe this is why David wanted to go to battle in the first place. To ensure the safety of Absalom. His whole plan was to ensure the safety of his son. When he faced resistance from the army, he simply resigned and just said, make sure my boy isn't killed. David gathers the three generals and gives them one final command, one departing charge. Do not harm my son, Absalom. <laughs> what? Do not harm Absalom? Deal gently with Absalom? This is war. This is not a pickup basketball game. In war, you don't say, I'm, I'm going to take it easy on you this time. It's a fight to the death. Could you imagine Churchill saying, deal gently with Hitler? <laughs> President Bush saying, deal gently with Osama bin Laden. Absalom is a cancer that's threatening to destroy God's kingdom. Could you imagine being a surgeon and a patient telling you right before you went into surgery, please, 
deal gently with the cancer. No, the cancer must be destroyed. This departing speech suggests David is willing to overlook his son's rebellion. Overlook the assault on God's kingdom. How this must have undercut the morale of the army. David's command was not given in privacy. It was given out in the open. Everyone heard David's instructions to his three generals. How do you do battle? Gently. David's explicit instructions. Do not kill Absalom. Do not torture him. Do not stab him. Bring him back alive with no bruises. Here's the problem. David didn't see Absalom as a usurper, but as a son. He didn't view him as a threat to God's kingdom, but as a member of the family. And what a twist of motives. The army values David above their own safety. David to the rear, David to the rear. But David is valuing his rebellious son above the army's safety. Verse 6. So the army went out into the field against Israel. And the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. It's a battle in the forest. A battle in the jungle. We have the account of one battle that lasts a single day. David chose the location for the battle. The terrain gives his army an edge which they needed. They were far outnumbered. We are not told the size of David's army, but it's much smaller than Absalom's army. The terrain levels the playing field, neutralizes the superior numbers. The jungle creates helter-skelter. Verse 8. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. How does the forest devour people? The Hebrew word is eat. Were trees eating people? Vines choking people? Holes swallowing people? Poisonous animals biting soldiers? It was a jungle setting. Were chimpanzees fighting? How, how does a forest eat people? It seems nature itself is fighting for David. The Middle East today is not what Israel was then. Some of you have been deployed to some of these areas, and so scenes like this in the Bible confuse you. The topography of this area has since changed. There is no forest there today. It's no surprise that topographies change over a 3,000-year period. Then it was abundantly green, flowing with lush vegetation and vines. I'm not saying it had killer chimpanzees, but it was definitely a jungle setting. Verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule. And the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. And his head caught fast in the oak. And he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. Absalom is among those consumed by the forest. 
Absalom was famous for the hair on his head. It was a news event every time he had it cut. He gloried in his hair. And some of you men that are losing your hair, you think that's exactly what he deserves. <laughs> Preachers often talk about his hair getting caught, but it wasn't his hair. It was his head. I think the misconception keeps lingering because Josephus, a Jewish historian, talks about his hair getting caught in the tree. It was his head. Here's what happened. Absalom is on a mule. Now, we laugh at that, but a mule was the black stallion of our day. It was actually a royal animal. Kings rode on mules. This faux king, Absalom, rides to battle on his kingly beast. He's going quite a fast pace, maybe chasing someone down who is on foot. The beast is in an all-out run. Absalom's hair, like Fabio, is blowing in the wind. He's, he's dodging limbs and branches when suddenly a tree comes up too quickly. He doesn't have time to duck. His head is wedged in the fork of a thick oak tree. And he's swinging like a pinata. Hanging helpless, hopeless, and humiliated. Even his mule has gone. Losing the mule was losing his royal seat. That was never his mule. That was David's mule. David's seat. Absalom had been squatting in David's royal seat. Head stuck in a tree. Church, what terrible luck. Wait. Luck isn't in the Bible. God guided that royal beast to that very tree. Accidents and coincidences are not words featured in God's dictionary. The text says Absalom was suspended between heaven and earth. Matthew Henry says Absalom was unworthy of either and abandoned by both. Earth would not keep him. Heaven would not take him. Hell, therefore, opens her mouth to receive him. Absalom took David's royal mule and David's promised land but ended up being rejected by both. Both the mule and the land didn't want Absalom on them. Verse 10. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver. And a belt. <laughs> General Joab is still ticked off that Absalom burnt his fields a few chapters ago. What? You saw him? You, you saw him? Why didn't you put a sword in his chest? Why didn't you kill him on the spot? He, he's a rebel pretender to the throne. I would have given you a medal of honor. And the warrior's belt. Only like two or three in the entire army. There would have been a reward ceremony, money to $20,000. The soldier responded, even if you gave me a million dollars, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't kill Absalom for a hundred times what you offered. I heard the king's command, bring his son back with no bruises, deal gently with him. You want me to risk my life and lay a hand on the king's son? 
If I did, you would have just stood there and watched the king rip my face off and then sentence me to immediate death. You would have just let me take the fall. Joab's response, verse 14. Joab said, I will not waste my time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. Joab's frustration is boiling over. Where is he hanging? In the big oak? Joab rushes over and he sees Absalom hanging. Uh, help me, Joab. I'm surmising. Help you? you? You burnt my fields. You tried to leverage me when I'm the one who asked the king to bring you back? You crossed me before and no one crosses me and lives to tell about it. Before you got on your high horse, you should have been mindful to duck for trees. Joab took out the three darts and stabbed them into the heart of Absalom. This one is for betraying your father. Mm. This one is for killing your brother. Mm. This one is for being a pain in the neck. Mm. There is a unique side-by-side -side in the original language that is hard to see in the English. Absalom hung in the heart of the tree and Joab stabbed him in the heart while in the tree. Verse 15, And ten young men, Joab's armor-bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Joab must have carried a lot of armor to battle. So much that he needed ten armor bearers. Men who carried his weapons alongside him in battle. Like a sporting event, throwing darts or, or shooting targets, these ten men have range practice with hanging Absalom. They begin shooting darts, throwing an axe, stabbing and slicing and chopping. Why would Joab do this? I imagine he ordered the whole group to kill Absalom so that not one specific person was responsible. When David asks, who killed my son? Everyone responds, I did. Everyone killed him. Earlier in the 2 Samuel narrative, Joab followed David's orders and had Uriah killed. Here, Joab disobeys David's orders and has his son killed. It brings up the question, was it right for Joab to kill Absalom? Was that right? Well, God did not inspire every few verses brackets that say this was right or this was wrong. No doubt Joab's actions were tainted with sin and wrong motives and personal vendettas. But I really think this was the right move. To eliminate the threat, Joab disobeyed David out of loyalty to the nation and out of loyalty to David. Joab was more loyal to David than David was to David. He knew Absalom wouldn't stop until David was dead. The Australian theologian Woodhouse quipped, Justice demanded one thing. David's love for Absalom demanded another. One commentator pointed out that Joab knew David wanted to treat the cancer with candy. Yeah, have a lollipop. He knew he wanted to treat the cancer with candy, but Joab knew it needed surgery. And he nominated himself as the surgeon. The, the word used 
for Absalom hanging is used only once in the first five books of the Bible. It says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Deuteronomy 21. Absalom's end, dead in a tree, demonstrates that he is under the curse of God. Who hung this man in a tree? Ultimately, God did. God is behind the hanging. Even if soldiers would not have been involved, Absalom was going to die. This was the plan of God. And now is a good time for me to remind you. This is not the only time God hung someone in a tree. This wouldn't be the last time someone would be suspended between heaven and earth. There would be another cursed one hanging on a tree. The Apostle Paul, a first century follower of Christ, said in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Paul quoted the Deuteronomy passage in reference to Christ. Which leads us to this truth. Absalom bore the curse himself on a tree. Jesus bore the curse for us on a tree. Absalom bore the curse himself on a tree. Jesus bore the curse for us on a tree. Weirdly, Absalom reminds us of Christ. God's rejected one points us to God's promised one. Absalom is a, is a reverse type. He's an anti-type of Christ. Both Absalom and Christ were pierced by soldiers. Both rode an animal shortly before their death. One a donkey, one a mule. Both were suspended between heaven and earth on a tree. Both hung helpless, hopeless, and humiliated. Both died bearing the Deuteronomy 21 curse of God. So many similarities. But there are some notable differences. As we will see in the last verse of our text, chapter 19, verse 8, all of Absalom's followers scattered after his death. Jesus' followers scattered only for a short time. They scattered forever. Both Jesus and Absalom were, were rejected by earth, but Jesus was accepted by heaven. We have no last words from Absalom while hanging in a tree, but we have last words from Jesus. It is finished. Wounded for me. Wounded for me. There on the cross, Christ was wounded for me. And gone my transgressions. And now I am free. All because Jesus was wounded for me. May God grant us grace to rest in Christ alone. After Absalom's death, verse 16. Then Joab blew the trumpet. And the troops came back from pursuing Israel. For Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him, notice this phrase, a very great heap of stones. And all Israel, that's Absalom's army, fled everyone to his home. Joab blew the trumpet, which signaled the cessation of military battle. 
Absalom was denied the honor of being laid to rest in the family tomb. This act of throwing a person in a pit and covering him with a pile of rocks is not unfamiliar in Scripture. Two other men were buried the same way. A pagan king of Ai was hung in a tree and then buried under a heap of stones, Joshua 8. Achan was buried in, under a heap of stones, Joshua 7. This form of burial, burial is fitting for an accursed enemy. Covering the dead in an immense mound of rocks is a mark of derision and horror and hatred and disgust and shame. It, it is the burial of the cursed. Absalom is buried like these men in shame. Both in the way of his death and in his burial, here is a man under the curse of God. Absalom wasn't the only man to die, however, in the jungle. We are told in verse 7 there were 20,000 casualties from Absalom's army. David's men mopped up in the jungle. Here's what Absalom and his big army were not aware of. In the jungle, in the mighty jungle, a lion sleeps tonight. Hush, my darling. Don't fear, my darling. The lion sleeps tonight. Verse 18. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. Two gravestones. The first gravestone was in the wilderness. And Joab set it up. It's simply a pile of rocks with, with blood oozing out and a bunch of flies around it. The second gravestone was one Absalom set up while he was living. It was like a memorial to himself. He had three sons die early in life, so... He had no one to carry his name on or to set a memorial for him. He erected this pillar to his own honor. He, his own monument raised to himself. I don't know what it looked like. I don't know if it was like the statue, like the Michael Jordan statue outside of the United Center in Chicago, or some large stone with his name on it. God throws in this little snippet of information for you to see that that's not his true memorial. His true memorial is in the wilderness. Two gravestones. One stood as a testimony to his rebellion and ruinous end. The other stood as a testimony that you can set up monuments for yourself all throughout life. But in the end, it only matters how you responded to God's kingdom. One gravestone was self-made. The other was God-made. One made him out to be a hero. The other revealed that he was nothing more than a rebel. Sarah and I have been planning our funerals. That sounds morbid to some of you. But we want it all laid out. What songs, who is speaking, where we will be buried, and what will be written on our gravestone. I want a quote by Zinzendorf. Big lettering. Preach the gospel. Die be forgotten. Then in real small letters at the bottom. But don't ever forget me. <laughs> Sarah wants on her gravestone, my husband was hot to death. 
All right, verse 19. One of the, one of the PKs, the, the priest kids, um, a approached Jayat, approached Joab when it was all over, and, and he was a bit of a, a naive fella to the whole thing, and he said, let me bring the good news to David that his enemy is dead. And Joab said, you're not going to take that news, preacher's kid. David doesn't deal kindly with those who bring news of death. I'm trying to save your life. I know what David's reaction is going to be. Verse 21. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed down before Joab and ran. This Cushite is from Africa. Joab thinks he's got no skin in the game. He's a foreigner. I'll send him. He's expendable. The PK saw this and he started in again. Let me go. Let me go. Now, I don't know why this boy has such enthusiasm for the task, but he's begging. He ain't too proud to beg. He's persistent. Joab reluctantly grants him permission, finally relents. Joab knows David's long history of killing messengers that come with news that they think is good, but is actually bad to David. Fine, go, but you're not going to get things. I'm I'm telling you, you will not get the typical messenger's reward. It's not going to be welcomed news. I'm standing back from the text, and I don't think the boy's eagerness is wise. Verse 23. Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, run. Then Ahimeaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. The Israelite outruns this African. Two runners, two different routes. This PK took the longer way. I looked it up on a map. He took the longer route. It, it was less, argu- but it was less arduous. The, the, the African had to climb the rugged forested hills. The Israelite had more miles, but less obstacles, smoother, leveler ground. Verse 24. Now David was sitting between the two gates and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall and when he lifted up his eyes and looked he saw a man running alone. All this happened in a day. Remember that. David is still dressed in his military gear. He's waiting to hear the results of the battle. He's standing by the gate of the city anxiously anticipating the results. Ancient cities had two gates. Double gateways. David is seated between the outer and the inner gates of the city. The watchman would have been in some tower. He sees a man running toward the city. He, he, he focuses his binoculars to try to get a better look. He informs the king, a messenger, a messenger is coming. And usually a solitary runner is likely to be a courier. War couriers were jobs that people held. They ran to and from battle to give reports. Then the watchman suddenly informs him, wait, I see another man running. The king is no doubt puzzled at two messengers racing for the finish line. Verse 27, the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man. And comes with good news. This PK must have had a unique run. That's the only explanation. Being able to identify someone by their run. 
I don't know if he ran like Forrest Gump. It was just very unique. Only one man runs like that. I don't know if he kicked his legs out to the side and that made it distinguishable. My son runs track and most of those kids all look the same while running. Western Kentucky boys bent over out of breath asking for a chocolate bar and Mountain Dew. <laughs> the PK runs and he wins the foot race to the finish line. King, God has delivered you. He's going to bring you back to Jerusalem. We won, we won. The rebellion has been crushed. G give me that reward right here. Verse 29. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimeaz uh, answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I don't know what it was. <laughs> now notice what's happening. This messenger is saying, All is well, all is well. And David responds, Is it well with my son Absalom? In other words, all is only well if Absalom is well. David doesn't ask about how many casualties his side suffered. He didn't ask if his three generals survived. He had a ton of nephews and cousins fighting. He didn't ask about any of them. David has only one question. How is my boy Absalom? There's a unique echo in the Hebrew text. The PK comes saying, peace, peace. The Hebrew word is shalom. The, the PK runs and says, shalom, shalom. David responds, what about Ab shalom? He comes saying peace and David asks, what about my peace? What about my son? What about my shalom? What about my Ab shalom? The PK, he's quick. He then picks up on what's happening. <laughs> oh, David doesn't care about the war. He only cares about his son. He doesn't care about God's kingdom in this moment. He only cares about his kid. And so the PK plays dumb. I don't know. <laughs> and he leaves the dirty work for the African Cushite. Verse 30, and the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he shoes him to the side. Verse 31, and behold, the Cushite came and the Cushite said, good news for my lord the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Shalom for your kingdom, but not shalom for your son. David is torn between a father's feelings and a commitment to God's kingdom. His overriding concern is not for military victory, but for the safety of his child. And from that, we can glean this truth. Parents, be more concerned with your children's spiritual safety than their physical safety. Be more concerned with your children's spiritual safety than their physical safety. David, it doesn't matter if your boy is safe in battle. He's not ultimately safe because he's rejecting God's kingdom. He's currently rejecting God's king. How does this play out today? With a little concerned voice, 
I heard there was a shooting where my son lives. Is Jack safe? I see there's a wreck on the side of the road. Is my daughter Emily safe? My son has gone off to war and I haven't heard from him. Is my boy safe? Are they safe? Are they safe? Are they safe? No. No, he is not safe. No, she is not safe. In fact, they are in great danger. He is not safe because like Absalom, he is at enmity with his father. What safe are you talking about? He didn't get shot. She didn't die in a car accident. He didn't get hit by an IED. But they are not safe. They are not safe because they are not in Christ. David's whole plan was to ensure the physical safety of his son. And that does him no good in eternity. I wish I could tell you that they are safe. I wish I could tell you that they have genuinely repented of their sins and put their faith in Christ. I wish I could tell you they are living submissive to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I wish I could tell you that they are safe, but they are not safe. Just because they prayed a prayer when they were a child doesn't mean they are safe. Many sons and daughters prayed a prayer and are in hell now. Parents, you have given your child a get-out-of-hell-free card. Friend, you can't distribute those. I'm always amazed by how parents of adult children are convinced that their children are Christians, but their lives, like Absalom, are lived in rebellion to the commands of God. Open your eyes, parents. David, there comes a time when parental approval and support must end. That time is when the child's choices are in opposition to God's kingdom. Leads us to this truth. Love can be inordinate. You can love the right things in the wrong amount. Love can be inordinate. You can love the right things in the wrong amount. This is what happened to David. He loved Absalom. He loved Absalom the wrong amount. His love of Absalom got in the way of his love of God. David, at this moment, is not aligning himself with God's kingdom. He's aligning himself with his rebellious son. He began to value his son above his Lord. He began to value his child over God's kingdom. And in the States, this happens often. The idolatry of children in the name of love spending enormous amounts of money and time to pacify these little spoiled ones. The idolatry of children will lead you to refusing to discipline them. David had no apparent action to curb his son's activities, either Amnon or Absalom. He never held his sons responsible for their actions. He did nothing to bring about redemptive change in his child's life. Now, TV shows and books and your little social media addicted neighbor may tell you different. But you are hindering your child by idolizing them. You think it will not affect them spiritually? You are crazy. As a pastor, I have to say sometimes, I will not bow down and worship your child. 
You may do that, but I will not do that. Now, I will, I will die for my children. In a minute, in a second, I will put my life on the line and die for my children. But I will not forsake my Lord for my children. Now, I need to leave this idolatry of children because it's going over really well on you. All right? <laughs> I want to hit this truth from a different angle. For many of you, like David, there will come a time when you have to choose between God's kingdom and your own family. It may not be the child that's opposed to your Lord. It may be a parent or a sibling or a grandparent. Evangelize, evangelize, evangelize. Love, love, love. But when your hand is forced, you choose your Savior every time. Let us always side with God. It only gets complicated. I hear it a lot. It's complicated, complicated. It only gets complicated when your love is inordinate. Loving your wife is good, but loving her more than God is sin. Loves rightly ordered allow and encourage God to be loved most. Now let's get back to the text. I left you hanging. You're probably wondering if the Cushite survived after delivering the news. He did. Uh, Phillips calls the Cushite message David's receipt of good news. David's receipt of good news. And it makes sense because his first two words to David were good news. A phrase that is always used as an announcement of victory. The word good news here is the same word in the New Testament as gospel. David hears the gospel and doesn't rejoice in it. I bring good tidings. I bring good news. I bring an announcement of victory. I bring gospel. David drops his head. He's not rejoicing in the good news. The battle was won, but my son was lost. How can I rejoice in this? See, David refused to rejoice in the gospel, but we will gladly rejoice in it. God is lining things up in this passage that will lead us to Jesus Christ. We rejoice in this news that God's kingdom will advance against all those who oppose it, including Absalom. David didn't have God's perspective on the news. We want to have God's perspective. We even see hints of God gathering the Gentiles into his kingdom. The African runner, do you, do you remember him? He's not a Jew. David, like the greater David after him, is beginning to attract Gentiles into his army. God, even at this point, is gathering some from all nations. Are you still rejoicing in the gospel? Does it still make you shout when you hear the good news? In the end, Absalom died because God was faithful to his covenant with David. That's your throne, your slippers, your mule, that's your land. Verse 33. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. 
David is still dealing with the consequences of his sin. David knew his acts of adultery and murder deserved death. He should have died instead of Absalom. His grief is complicated by guilt. See, the Lord's discipline, even when tempered by his salvation, can be painful. Interestingly, for the first time in the narrative, we hear David call Absalom his son. After hearing the news, David goes up into the room over the gate, a little chamber. The text says he's deeply moved, meaning he's shaking, he's bawling, he's mourning, he's distraught. He's remembering Absalom play with a little dump truck on the floor. Remembering his first words. Remembering when they would run together and laugh and fall on the ground. He's remembering how he favored his other son, Amnon, over Absalom and missed many moments with him. He knows there will be no funeral for his son, no graveside, no closure, no goodbye. In the Hebrew, when you want to emphasize something, the original language, Hebrew and Greek, really, when you want to emphasize something, you say it twice. Jesus cried, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Remember on the cross when Jesus said, my God, my God. Look at how many times David repeats Absalom, my son. It's repeated here eight times. He's reduced to a kind of stammering repetition, a grief-filled stutter. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Friend, David wanted to die in Absalom's place, but he couldn't. Jesus did what David couldn't do. Our search for a king ends at Calvary. David said, oh, my son, I wish I died instead of you. Jesus says, oh, my sons and daughters, I did die instead of you. That's substitutionary atonement. Jesus died in your place. 2 Samuel 19, verse 1. It was told, Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. Evidently, the other people could hear the king mourning. That little chamber above the gate had thin walls. They could hear the grief of a bereaved father. Three darts in the heart of his son. They might as well have been driven through his heart. His heart is bleeding. His mind is spinning. His emotions are wailing. He's now lost a third son. The military victory meant nothing. He plunged himself into grief. Verse 2. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people had heard that day the king is grieving for his son. Instead of chants of victory filling the streets, mourning did. The army, demoralized, with their shoulders dropped and their heads down. Verse 3, and the people stole into the city that day as people still in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face. And the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Stole here means that they, they began to disperse. There's no parade. The streets are empty because everyone is going home. The king withdrew and went into mourning, and so did they. David is inconsolable. His face in his hands and tears are puddling below him. Verse 5. Then... 
uh, what I'm going to read here is, is just one sentence. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, I want to get Joab's tone here. You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants. You have this day, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. Because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Joab tears into David, lost it on him. He unleashes a blistering barrage of words. He throws bare-fisted punches. These are damning accusations that make up the longest sentence in the entire book of First and Second Samuel. You seem ungrateful for the sacrifice the soldiers have made. You gave them no word of appreciation. You have humiliated them by your actions. Your actions are a clear sign you care nothing about your soldiers. A strong tone, sharp words, piercing accusations, a stinging rebuke. I think this was suitably brutal. Suitably brutal. Were there some rhetorical exaggerations? Some purposeful overstatements? Yes, but it got the point across. Whenever I study a narrative, I'm, I'm always asking, how is the narrator portraying the characters? How is the narrator portraying the characters? Absalom is central. Joab is dominant. David is passive. Absalom is central. Joab is dominant. We see his dominance here. David is passive. Joab is accusing David of, and I, I want you to get this and and may the Lord plant this in your heart and soul. Joab is accusing David of disproportionate sorrow. He's saying this is not rightly ordered grief. This is excessive grief. You've allowed your grief to outweigh your kingly responsibilities. Grieve. I'm not saying do not grieve. I'm just saying when your grief makes you drop your responsibilities, it's too much. Church, you have been with me through First and Second Samuel. You know this kind of grief wasn't typical for David. He grieved after the death of Saul and Jonathan. He grieved after the death of his infant child. All those times of mourning and grief were appropriate. This one was not. There's something different about this grief. This was grief with no hope. Every other time David mourned, it was in public. This time, it is in private. His mourning has no theology to it. You can mourn with good theology or mourn with bad theology. David is mourning with bad theology. Church, don't be like him. Joab rebukes David's unbalanced emotionalism. David's sin was not that he grieved. 
Grieving is very good and appropriate. His sin was that he grieved excessively. He would not allow himself to be comforted. Not by an individual and not by God. We expect a father to grieve over the tragic death of his son. But this is grieving in a way that sides more with the rebel than the redeemer. Hear me, church. It is not wrong for you to grieve the death of a loved one. But it can be. It can be an ungodly grief. A self-destructive mourning. I'm not saying this text is a grief counseling manual. But I am saying the heart is the same. We are still bent to respond in this way, to grieve with no hope. Now, after this rebuke, chapter 9, verse 8, Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. We come to the literary ending in verse 8. And it's a bit anticlimactic. The king wipes his eyes, splashes his face with water, takes his seat between the gates. This symbolized David had returned to his royal position and mourning was over. Now, two closing applications. The first application is for parents. I'm giving this application in light of the story. So the parent in the story is David and the child in the story is Absalom. And I hope this application will encourage you and allow you to rest in the sovereignty of God. Here's the application. David, Absalom chose to reject God's kingdom. You did not make him the person he is. He is responsible for himself. David, Absalom chose to reject God's kingdom. You did not make him the person he is. He is responsible for himself. Take out the name David and put your name in it. Take out the name Absalom and put your child's name in it. Some of you are so broken over the behavior of your adult children. And you put yourself through guilt trip after guilt trip. I am not here to relieve you of any of the mistakes you've made. Some of you should have read the Bible nightly with your children and you didn't. You should have modeled repentance in the home before your children and you didn't do it well. I'm not here to ignore any of that. I'm saying repent and move forward in the grace Jesus has promised you. I'm saying that your child will not be able to use any of that as an excuse when they stand before God. Your child's salvation doesn't rest in your perfect parenting skills. They are responsible. They must repent. They must submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Pray for their salvation. But don't beat yourself up. And evangelize them now. Don't lose your boldness because you didn't live perfectly in the home when they were children. Now an application for children. Absalom, your daddy isn't perfect. Your daddy is a sinner. Just because your earthly father failed you doesn't give you an excuse to reject God as your heavenly father. Absalom, your daddy isn't perfect. Your daddy is a sinner. Just because your earthly father failed you doesn't give you an excuse to reject God as your heavenly father. 
Now, I'd imagine Absalom saying, well, I mean, my dad had multiple wives. He had favored children in the home. He loved Amnon more than me. My dad worked all the time. He was never home. Beloved, if Absalom said that to me, I would say, so what? Absalom, none of your dad's actions make it okay for you to rebel against a holy God. Now, all of you Absaloms, all of you Absaloms out there listening to me, men and women, none of your parents' actions make it okay for you to reject the commands of God. You better put down your rebellion against King Jesus. You better run to this king and ask for forgiveness of sins. Father, hard truths from a loving hand. Thank you for giving us this text. We needed it. We needed it to be complete in Christ. Help us now not just to know it, but to live it. Thank you. Thank you that we could survey the wondrous cross from this Old Testament chapter. Amen.